This is an ABC podcast. When you get through to a call centre, do you know who you're talking to? Where they are? This week on Download This Show, a stunningly weird piece of proposed technology that will change the accent of people in call centres has opened up a can of worms as to where our prejudices and I guess also our expectations with call centres lies and it is messy. Plus, Facebook are about to settle a major lawsuit and will there ever be a day when petrol fueled vehicles will be banned in Australia because there's at least one US state that has already set a date. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And our guest this week, a product manager with Flux Finance, Natasha Chilazo. Welcome back to Download This Show. Hello. And from Access Informatics Analyst Extraordinaire, yes, you can endorse him for that on LinkedIn, I believe. Peter Marks, welcome <laughs> back on Download This Show. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. So interesting uh, news this week. Uh, look, you know what? I actually feel like it's been a whole seven days since I talked about Facebook. But um, Facebook's <laughs> Cambridge Analytica data breach lawsuit uh, has been settled. Peter, uh, just roll roll us back a little bit. What was this case about in the first place? Well, in 2014, Facebook allowed UK-based Cambridge Analytica to access and extract the private data of 50 million of their users. The firm was linked to former Trump advisor Steve Bannon, who used the data to micro-target millions of voters. Now, a whistleblower revealed this in 2018 and said that, quote, he had made Steve Bannon's psychological warfare tool that helped Trump win the election. Staff, including at least one academic from Cambridge University, built machine learning models to exploit what they knew about voters and to target their inner demons. Now, Facebook noticed this unusual activity, that the unusual data harvesting, in 2015, but failed to alert the users. And this resulted in a class action lawsuit seeking damages when the allegations were published finally in 2018. Please tell me that Inner Demons is named in the legal papers, Peter. I, I, I need to believe that that exists in legal documentation somewhere. Well, I think that's it. And it's one of the problems <laughs> with modern election campaigns is that people can get different ads according to their interests or fears. So we really don't know the message, you know, the message from one party like Trump can be finely targeted at individuals. It's it's a different kind of campaign that we're getting with this these unfortunately powerful tools. So what is the outcome of the, the settlement? Do we know, Natasha? Yeah, so basically Facebook have agreed to settle and pay damages um, to, to end the case. And in some ways that's basically an admission that they did the wrong thing in selling these psychographic profiles of people. This was things like where they lived and what pages they liked on Facebook to create a more advanced profile of these individuals than consulting firms might be able to get from other kind of researchers. Um, so they've settled that in that they did the wrong thing. Um, but not everybody's happy with that outcome. Why not? What, what, what are people hoping for? So the main kind of like point of contention as to why people are not happy is it does mean that Facebook CEO and co-founder Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg 
won't be questioned. So they won't be brought in front of, you know, cross examiners to basically go through what their thinking at the time was. This is something that they've spoken to before in various other kinds of public hearings. They spoke at uh, Senate hearings in the US, right? Exactly. Um, But not in the context of uh, like a legal case. So people are disappointed about that, even though they're on a, on one level, this is sort of closing the chapter for Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal um, in getting that kind of cementation that Facebook did the wrong thing here. I guess are there lingering questions that haven't been answered that the people still want answered, Natasha? I think it's questions like, you know, what were the policies that you had in place? You know, was this something that you just didn't know about that was happening under your watch? Or was this something that you were specifically endorsing and you were okay with um, this type of advertising going on? So if this happened today, if an election happened today, Peter, what would be different about what Facebook would and wouldn't give up to a company like Cambridge Analytica? Are there are there different rules? Are there different strictures in place that would prevent something like this from happening again in 2022? Yes, they have introduced some ability to see um, election-based advertising, uh, which was done in Australia in the last election, although I think they've turned that off again at the moment. Um, I think something went wrong, like they gave Cambridge Analytica an API where they could scrape data, and I think Cambridge Analytica went far beyond what they thought they would do. Like lots of people have APIs into, you know, Facebook and Twitter and so on, where you can do things like create it tweet or create a post or something or read someone's profile. But I think what they what Analytica did was actually abu- you know, abuse the API, if you like. They used it as much as they could to follow people's social networks and suck them out. I mean, they sucked out 50 million profiles. So they did something that Facebook didn't expect. The bigger question, though, is, you know, in 2015, when Facebook figured out what was going on, why did they not act? Why did they not, despite all of their own policies, tell people that their profiles had been stolen and used by a company that was going to use it for elections. It's it's um, hard to understand that. I mean, Zuckerberg's already had to testify, as you said, and he clearly doesn't enjoy it. I mean, he, he handled <laughs> no. himself fairly well in terms of he didn't sort of stuff it up. I think the, and, understatement, and of the, terror, I think the understatement of the century is that Zuckerberg well, didn't enjoy it. Well, he's not a warm character and I don't think he helps the cause. And, of course, he was asked some silly questions. Uh, you might remember that um, one of the senators asked him some questions about Twitter and he had to say, we're not Twitter. And uh, actually, it's funny, if you Google around about questions to Zuckerberg from uh, Congress, there's hilarious lists of both real and imagined questions out there. You know, people saying things like, my VCR clock is flashing 12, what should I do? <laughs> and stuff like that. But anyway, so I think part of it is they will pay eye-watering amounts of money to avoid testifying again and revealing more mm. about their practices, perhaps inadvertently. Sheryl Sandberg, of course, uh, Chief Operating Officer, she's leaving and she was facing up to six hours of testimony So, uh, from the plaintiff lawyers, not from, from Congress, from September 20. So she'll be happy to be off the hook for that. Mm. But, yeah, I think that, that they just they'll pay any amount of money. They've already paid $5 billion to settle a Federal Trade Commission case and to protect Zuckerberg from being named. They will pay any amount of money to avoid being named or inquired on or being forced to testify, I think. I should say I misspoke earlier. Uh, they did testify in front of Congress, not Senate. And uh, and for those of you playing at home, you might have heard that acronym earlier, API, which I guess for in simplest terms would be uh, a set of tools. It's that an it's... application programming interface. It's a way that a program code can talk to your system. Yeah. So if, you, if you're a third party, you can access all the data uh, and you have an agreement with uh, Facebook, you should be able to access a bunch of data of users 
on Facebook, just in, I mean, in generalised term, would that be about right? That's right, Mark. You've got it. You could be a programmer. Ah, nobody wants that. Um, Natasha, there's an interesting thing that stands out to me, which is there's no question here that the future of advertising, at least online, requires some kind of data mining, requires some kind of getting to know you. And certainly that is Facebook's business model, right? The Facebook Mm -hmm. business model has been the getting to know you and, and being able to service you ads that are most relevant to you. And I guess there's an inevitability to that to some degree where, um, you know, we and, and Facebook are far from unique in this regard. TikTok do it, you know. Yeah, uh, Instagram in, is in, a big one. Instagram do, do, do it as well. I'm trying to work out where is the appropriate line, right? Because if we, if we acknowledge that, you know, elections both in the US and around the world will always have some advertising component and if the advertising market is increasingly moving online, there's a slight, like, some of this is going to happen anyway, but then we have to decide, particularly after events like this, well, what is an appropriate amount of data mining that we're willing to kind of put up with as users, as, as, a, as, a, as a democracy, um, in order to have ad service to us? Do you have a line? Do you have, do you have rules that you would put in place? Yeah, I feel like the dynamics of sort of like a company like a Facebook and then the various advertisers, so whether that's political campaigners who obviously spend a lot of money trying to win a vote because that's valuable or whether that's like, you know, an e-commerce brand trying to get you to buy uh, a new makeup tool, like they're not necessarily going to put the lines in place. So it's sort of like up to, I guess, us as like a civic population. Well, to... it kind of comes down to events like this because you only yeah, ever find out when totally. somebody screws up, right? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, some of the lines, I, I think that there needs to be way more kind of like practical tools built into these platforms around like the deletion of data, the clearing of that, like kind of uh, yeah. cleansing the slate every so often. So as opposed to kind of like building up this psychographic profile over years and years and years, understanding and being able to make predictions about like what you earn, where you live, how you voted before, even just cle- like clearing that periodically would at least kind of like level the playing field between you as kind of like a voter or a consumer in this particular conception and these companies. Um, because I think, I genuinely think we're in like a really tough era around this question, especially when, I mean, I speak to people, I'm fascinated by this. So I speak to people all the time about what ads they're seeing targeted to them on these platforms and they're increasingly niche. That's Mm. the thing. People that I would have shared a lot of common in common in what they're seeing online is getting increasingly different to what. I suppose, the long, I suppose the longer we spend online, the better the internet gets to know us. Right. And I know that's kind of a very generalised concept, but, you know. And that could be the feeling, right? And I think, like, especially when it's like that sense of having something mirrored back, and I think, like, the TikTok algorithm is probably, like, the biggest example of that right now. Like, people are having this experience that this algorithm almost knows them their humour better than mm. their closest friends and family. And I'm like, well, maybe that's an indication that where you're spending your time and, yeah. Well, maybe maybe it's like in defense of slow getting to know someone, right? Like these maybe platforms are able to get to know you very, very quickly, but maybe efficiency isn't always the goal. Maybe a bit of slowing down can be the key. Um, yeah. Peter, for you, I mean, there's ad, online advertising is going to become the, do, the dominant form of advertising mm. and elections are going to have a form of advertising online. What are the rules that should be put in place? 
Well, I mean, I think it's a case of be careful what you wish for. I mean, there's an argument that targeted advertising is more interesting because it's things you're interested in rather than just being random ads shown to you. It used to be that uh, election ads were, you know, either national, the same ad in the broadsheet or perhaps nationally on TV and then they, you know, were broken down by markets and so on. Now we're getting different ads according to where we live. So, for example, you might be in a mining area, you'll get ads saying that uh, the parties are pro-mining or, or whatever, but someone in a inner city area might get an ad saying that the party is uh, is uh, against mining. So, you know, we're not. it's not a democracy anymore when people are seeing different versions of, uh, of what the party wants them to see. I, I just wonder, you know, the problem that these algorithms cause is that by giving you what you want, more of what you are interested in or show interest in, it takes people down rabbit holes, be they um, body image, uh, eating disorder rabbit holes or, um, or crazy conspiracy theory rabbit holes. There's an, there's an evil to these t- this tuning of the content we see because people, unfortunately, if they see something everywhere, in quotes, they think it must be true. And that's how conspiracy theories have really taken off, including you know anti-vaxxing and all of this sort of stuff we've seen in the last few years. This is dangerous stuff. It kills people. And we need to rein it in somehow. Anyway, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And actually staying in the US this week, uh, California has decided to ban sales of petrol-only vehicles by 2035, which seems quite soon to me, Peter. But maybe that's just my, my backwards Australia point of view. I don't know. Maybe, but under the rules issued by the California Air Resources Board, CARB, I love how they make up these <laughs> acronyms, acronyms uh, 35% of new vehicles sold in the state of California must be electric, hybrid or hydrogen powered by 2026, 68% by 2030 and 100% by 2035. Now, of course, California is huge. It's the most popular state in the US, 39 million, I think, when I last counted. Wow. And it's one of the world's biggest economies. So these rules will force the car makers to either subsidise, because they've got to sell the cars, they've either got to subsidise electric vehicles or figure out how to bring the price down to make them competitive in their own right. If the latter is the effect, then this will be a global move because they'll start making the cars. So say Toyota might do it and then, of course, they'll sell that car globally. Of course, rising fuel prices help along the way too. Mm. I should say this comes at the same time as uh, Australia has been recently declared to be, and I'm, it's a terrible pun, but I'm going to go with it. Roll with it. We're in the slow lane when it comes to electric vehicles. Oh. So when I say that it seems slow to me, I am obviously coming from my literally quite uh, backwards uh, electric vehicle point of view. Why are we so comparative, at least to California, behind uh, other markets on this. And, and and again, like, and do tell me if my perception of that is wrong. No, your perception of that is right. So actually um, for this story, I spoke to like an old colleague at the Australian Financial Review and um, I was like, what do you think? Because um, he's done a lot of research in this. And I was like, actually, give me the year that you think that Australia would have a similar kind of mandate. Um, do you want to guess the year that he came back with, Mark? Um. Twenty-two thirty-five. Yeah, so the, year the Starship Enterprise <laughs> yeah. launches out. He, he said two thousand one hundred. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, there's there's definitely differences. Um, one of them in Australia, obviously, is politics. Yeah, and just like where our political conversation has been and what it's been focused on under kind of like a Morrison government, you know, and that's 
recent times, right? Um, they weren't talking about electric vehicles. Let's put it that way. In, not not in positive terms, largely, no. Right, exactly. Um, so there's that. There's the recency of the political climate. There's also, there is a bit of a, even if electric vehicles are rolled out in Australia, um, there probably will be quite a big discrepancy for a long time between urban areas and country areas. See, this is what I wanted to talk about. So I happen to have spent a lot of time in the Central Valley of California because I did a podcast there for Amazon many years ago. And one of the things people don't necessarily realise about California is obviously you've got your North End, which is, you know, you sort of San Francisco sort of territory and you've got Hollywood and LA down south. But in the middle is this big... A lot of desert. There's a lot of desert, a lot of farmland Mm. and there's a lot of, and a lot of Republican voters, Mm -hmm. like in the middle, like the middle of of California. And I was fascinated to get a sense of the fact that for that community, which is really agricultural based, what it means for them, because that, because one of the biggest things that always gets chucked up in Australia is like, well, Australia is very big and you have to drive long ways. And it's like the same issues exist mm. there mm. and I don't sense the same. And, and I had a look. I had a look for like, you know, what, what, do the, what are the local newspapers saying in Visalia? And they don't have the same level of like. Oh, we can't build charging stations yeah. in the country. <laughs> yeah, like there's none yeah. of that. And, that these are, and I've spent a lot of time in these areas. These are Republican voters in, yeah. in you know, in far, like, so, you know, if, if we want to kind of look at it through a political lens, there's a lot of similarities to some of the the landscapes we're talking about here. It's a big and industry, place. And industry yeah. exactly, and they don't have the same sort of concept projection that we have in Australia, which I found Super fascinating. Interesting. I love that. I mean, yeah, then maybe there is just a level of just being like, no, guys, like let's build some charging stations. I think it would be amazing if we had more electric vehicles on the road in Australia. I mean, there's also like a lot of movements towards this, like. Like we recently reported on a few different things, like Ford fired 3,000 people in the US, but it's part of them declaring an electric vehicle future. Uber in Australia have reduced fees for Aussie drivers with electric vehicles. So obviously it's an American company, but we do have a lot of people who are Uber drivers. BYP, who's a Chinese electric vehicle maker, um, they've ramped up production this year. So I think that would be an obvious, they're obviously kind of responding to signals um, whether that's from California or whatever countries who people are going to buy these. Europe, obviously, who are going to buy these cars. On the Australia-specific question, I'm a bit like, yeah, why not? That would be my 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 thinking, but I'm trying to think what other people have said. Um, yeah. But, um, Peter- but I like you calling BS on the we have we spread out point in Australia. Well, I guess actually this is probably something to, to bring you back in, Peter, here um, while I geek out about electric cars, which is um, we are talking about cars. Does Is there a sense of whether or not it extends to heavy vehicles, right? Because that would be the that would be the other area where if we're talking about freight and trucks yeah. and farming because I think that's probably an area where it, that there might be a longer lag on some of that technology. Well, of course, uh, electric vehicles uh, entered the culture wars with um, uh, crazy assertions about their inability to tow a trailer or a boat and therefore, quote, end the weekend, according to past Prime Minister Scott Morrison. (laughs) And, of course, range anxiety, you know, is very real. But a lot of these vehicles, most of these vehicles do more than 200 kilometres on a charge. And most of us never drive that far in normal circumstances. But range anxiety can, you know, be solved with things like uh, obviously a bigger network. But also there's apps in the cars that say you're going to go flat around here. Here's where the the next charging station is and direct you to them. And don't forget that hybrid vehicles are still allowed. And hybrid vehicles work beautifully for long distances. I can, I've got a hybrid vehicle. I can drive to Sydney on one tank. It's it's fantastic. And with rising prices, it's um, a, a fuel. It's uh, it's been a great thing to do. 
But um, I, I think that one problem is at the moment, electric vehicles are kind of at the luxury end. They're, they're very expensive vehicles. They're beautifully made. They're, they're high-end vehicles. Whereas in China, which I think has the most electric vehicles of any country in the world, they have tiny electric cars, which are very cheap, and uh, they're more like sort of uh, tuk-tuks or uh, bicycles and things like that. I think we need to start looking at that. If you, you just want a little vehicle, you can charge from a normal PowerPoint to go up to the supermarket and, uh, and you know, do your shopping. Then there's a great role for those sorts of things. They can also be hooked in to be a battery for your solar system. So we need to get out of this current fud we're in where where they are big expensive cars they should be cheaper cars and of course there's you know there's money to be saved on fuel going forward i feel like we're talking about this as australians as though we kind of have a choice but i'm like guys do we make cars anymore i no no do you know what i mean no. there's sort of like a level at we, which it's we like, import them we import them that's what i mean yeah. but it's like if the companies that are producing the cars overseas are having a completely different discussion in some ways does it make australia's thoughts, feelings uh, about we, electric vehicles, a little bit moot when it's like, well... We're just going to inherit whatever other markets... Right. I, I, I don't know enough, to be honest, about the, sure. the car industry to, to answer that. Yeah. I, I would assume that we are... I mean, we're not a we're not a huge population centre, realistically, globally, but we mm. are probably quite a high car buying company. Yeah, like there would be absolutely. other There's lots of countries around the world that probably have high populations but, but lower car buying. I think that sure. by the nature of Australia, spread out nature, we probably do buy quite a lot of cars. Yeah. Um, we have done some specials of this show over the years on electric vehicles and that has been one of the things that has come up even though we're not a hugely populous country, we do just tend to buy a lot of cars. Um, look, finally here on the show, I did want to get to this uh, really, really unusual story. Um, when you call up a call centre for, for tech help, for example, and you hear an accent, be honest, what's the first thought that goes through your head? What country are they in, maybe? Well, there is a company, a uh, Silicon Valley startup, that has developed technology that can change the accent of call centre workers in real time. And I do believe the technical definition for that is a gigantic Pandora's box. Natasha... Why would a company like this do this in the first place? Yeah, it's definitely created some controversy. I'll describe what the software does first. Yeah. So Sarnas, um, it's basically like a they're calling it an accent translation tool. They've had a bunch of fu- funding. Um, on their demo of what the tool does, you can go onto their website. It says discover the magic. And basically the input is a English-speaking customer service rep with an Indian accent. And the output after it's had the Sarnas magic applied to it is an English-speaking customer service rep with an ambiguous American accent. So that's what they're selling. From my point of view, both are equally understandable as an English speaker. Um, but there is, yeah, serious controversy in terms of what this software is providing around what it's trying to solve, why it's trying to solve it in that particular way, um, which... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth pointing out that um, you know the the co-founder is a guy named Sharath uh, Kevasha Narayana, uh, so it's not like it's being devised by you know white supremacists per se. Totally, it's, but and it's still a complex. It's it's how it works. It's almost not even about the technology. It's about what its what its potential uptake says about us totally. more than anything, right? I think it's kind of a common story. So three of the co-founders, uh, they're immigrants and they've hit back at the controversy to say 90% of our employees are immigrants and um, they are saying that this is kind of a solution to a workplace safety problem and that call centre 
operators or staff in countries like the Philippines, um, India have, you know, dealt with like customers on the other end of the line saying that they don't understand them. And this is a way of kind of mitigating their workplace safety concerns and making it easier for them to do their jobs. But on the other hand, critics have hit back and said, no, like this move is basically normalizing the idea that an American accent or a particular way of speaking English is more palatable or easier to work with, which just I think is so icky and yeah. I have such complicated feelings about this, Peter. How do you feel about it? Well, I think the moving of call centres offshore to English-speaking countries with lower wages such as India and the Philippines has also meant that those staff are less connected to the caller's location. So I must admit, you know, when I've had to ring up, a, you know, an ISP about my internet going down, my heart does sink when I detect that the call centre is offshore somewhere and I realise it's it's quite likely they're unable to help me. They'll just go through a script and ask me the same old questions, all the things I've already done. Uh, and sometimes the operators even lie about where they are. They'll pretend to be here or, you know, near yeah. me. And I'll, I say, oh, how do you like the um, the rain today? Very heavy, isn't it? And I'll say, oh, yes, sir. Yes, yes, it is. So I think, you know, <clears throat> there's obviously racism there, but there's also people are sick of talking to call centre operators who aren't empowered to actually analyse and fix their problem. They're just going to go through a script and it's it's a very unsatisfying uh, way of getting a problem solved. I tend to use the um, the chat window. I find the chat is better because I can paste in all of my account information, all the things I've done so far, the problem I'm having, and then I find that I reckon the people doing the chat stuff are actually handling 10 customers at the same time because they'll ask me the questions again. They'll say, oh, what was your account number? And I'll say, see above. And they say, what problem are you having? Say, see above. What have you done so far? <laughs> see above. I, I've literally had that chat conversation. I just go, I've already told you all the things I know you need to just, I don't know whatever it is, reset that node or something. So it's very frustrating and, you know, I, I guess it's it's an element of racism, but there's a reason why we're sick of wasting time talking to call centres. But that software doesn't solve that problem, yeah, do you know that's, what I mean? So thing, I think if we right? dial back no, and if no, you dial doesn't. back and you go, okay, companies in the current way that capitalism works, they focus on customer acquisition rather than really good customer servicing. One of the downstream consequences of that is like a growth is good mentality. Let's scale up. Let's scale as many customers as we possibly can year on year. But they're not really worry about that group of people once we've signed them up to our internet service, once we've signed them up to our streaming service, whatever it is. So then you that leads to cost cutting on aspects of a business like customer servicing, which is where you get the what's efficient. Let's look at labor costs. Let's send those labor costs overseas. And this- and also the rise of chatbots is completely linked to that because chatbots are basically mm. trying to make it more efficient. What are the common questions and FAQs? So I think it's like to have this conversation and to start at the software is kind of unfair because it's like you have to dial back and look at all the forces that have even led to this emerging in the first instance. I think this isn't icky solution to a symptom of another problem that it that it doesn't solve you know i the idea that this is a that they've reframed this as a workplace safety issue it's like i could i can see the argument i absolutely can but it it doesn't actually get to the core of the issue and the core of the issue which is that call center experiences are often deeply unsatisfying they deeply Mm. that you feel Mm. like you're being taken for a ride and as to your point nat like they you know it's a a lot of companies are interested in capturing you 
And once they've got you, the retention and, and your ongoing service is, is atrocious in, in many places. So I feel like, you know, as much as I, like the technology I'm sure is useful for a range of things. It's just the fact that they've gone out to market with this particular, mm. this particular use case is the thing that, <laughs> and the fact that also that a lot of the team are actually from, you know, non-white backgrounds, it just makes it, it's just like, a, it's a weird, com- I have a very strange reaction to it because it's such an unusual combination of things coalescing on one story. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time this week. Natasha Gillazo, Product Manager for Flux Finance. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me, Mark. Peter Marks, Access Informatics Analyst. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Mark. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell. And thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.